This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm so glad you're tuning in today because I just fell in love with today's guest. I know you will too. Her name is Linda Zanako, and I'm going to tell you, she's someone I now consider a role model. Linda founded an organization called He Knows Your Name. It's a ministry that's founded on the belief that every single life is sacred to God and that naming children that have passed away even before birth matters deeply and gives their lives dignity and honor. Linda is often encountering truly sad and tragic situations, but her organization is able to bring light and life to some of the darkest places you can ever imagine. As you'll hear in our interview, this isn't something Linda ever thought she'd be doing with her life, but a theme I continue to hear from her is that God is asking every one of us to say yes when he asks. She humbly said yes when he asked her to care for one abandoned baby, and the rest is history. I was so moved by Linda's stories that I had a hard time even eking out some of my questions because I kept tearing up. I'd already read her incredible book, which we'll link in the show notes today, and I know how hard, I knew how hard this interview was going to be, but it was also the best thing that I got to do this week. I know you'll be blessed by this interview with Linda. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm here today with Linda Zanako of the organization He Knows Your Name. And Linda's actually here at my house. Which I know. This is, is so great. Yeah, which is not normal for me, but it's exciting. It's mm-hmm. a new way to interview, and maybe I'll maybe I'll like it better than even the, the phone interview. Mm-hmm. So, Linda, thank you for coming over and just coming to hang out with me for an hour or so. It's awesome. I love sitting in your kitchen and seeing the pictures of your kids and seeing your real life, too. I mean, I just think this is going to be a dynamic um, for just an audio message that I hope will um, be really significant for your listeners. Yeah, well, I was excited to learn about your organization a few months ago at an event that EdgeX put on. You were there. I didn't know who was even going to be there. I, I came because Annie Downs was speaking and then there was other speakers there. And when you told your story about your organization, I was just so moved and so uh, drawn to it that I wanted to learn more. And then uh, your um your assistant Molly is yeah. my instructor at Orange Theory. And so I saw Molly and I was like, hey, you know, actually, I wouldn't mind connecting with Linda. And so she hooked us up. Yeah. Um, and then I was able to read your book and see kind of the origin story behind He Knows Your Name. And mm-hmm. it was actually much more, um, much more to it than I realized mm-hmm. from from your description at the event. So mm-hmm. if you could just walk us back to, um, to what is He Knows Your Name? How did it get started? And how did you get into this work that you didn't even really expect to be doing? Yeah. Yeah, well, I sure did not expect to be doing it. And I still don't have like a five-year plan for how I'm looking at it in the future. So it, it just has come to me. And I just think that the, the, the way that God has brought a need to me you know, birth something because I saw a need. And I think that that's kind of the interesting way that through a news story, this came to me. Um, so the baby doe wearing a diaper found in a dumpster was a breaking news story that I heard. And I knew when I heard that, I better see what's going on. And so sitting at my computer one day as really a stay-at-home mom, I was not honestly looking for anything to do um, because my life was really full. I was grieving the loss of my own mom. 
And when I heard that come through the news story um, of my computer, you know, I stopped and looked at the visual. And the visual was, you know, the yellow construction tape and the sirens all going and people gathering and just the distress on the situation was just very present on my screen and, and it grabbed my heart. And I instantly thought these words that I knew were not from me. And it was that dough is not a name and a dumpster is not a grave and a diaper is not burial clothing. And I knew that when God flipped that upside down in my heart, that it was like he was telling me what to do and how to make this injustice right. And um, the origin of He Knows Your Name came out of a news story, you know? And I think people watch the news and they're so overwhelmed by all the things they see. And they think, you know, how could I ever do anything about these terrible things I'm seeing because there's so many of them. And I always want to encourage people to say, then do the one thing. You know, there's got to be one thing that made your heart beat faster when you saw that news story or heard that situation happening. Um, you know, answer that and ask God, like, what? where is my name on this? And is there something for me to do in this? Because I knew clearly when I heard that, and the economy of it flipped that it was for me to do something about. And you then <clears> called <throat> down to the police the police station, right? I called the well first I called the um, there's an online article that followed the video and I saw who the journalist was and I called him and I said, you know, where can I get some answers because I don't even know where to start with this. And he said, well, it will be a criminal investigation. You need to call the coroner's office because that's where the baby is now. And I, you know, hesitated because I thought I've never called the coroner's office before. Yeah. I certainly don't know anyone there, and it's a little creepy to think about doing that. Um, but I thought I can make a phone call. And in making that phone call and asking then the questions I had, which were, you know, what happens to a baby that's left like this? What happens when the baby's unclaimed? And how long does a criminal investigation take? Uh, you know, the answers to those few questions actually gave me my next steps and the answers caused me more turmoil than even seeing what I saw. Because there weren't really answers. Right. And then in that time period, so basically you at that point were kind of stuck. You couldn't really do anything but wait. And in that time frame that you were kind of waiting, other things began to happen. Right. Like another situation arose where you felt called to to go in mm -hmm. and, and do something about it. Right. Now, what was that second situation? Well, the second situation was a baby that was abandoned at the coroner's office. So after having my initial phone call with the coroner, I said to them, you know, will you put my name on this case? And I want to make sure this baby is named and claimed in death and given a, a celebration of life. And they said, okay, but this criminal investigation could take a while. And I was thinking, well, you know, what's a while? I don't know, maybe a year, but I've got all nothing but time. So that's okay. I'll wait, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, something in me thought I'm going to have to really stay on them. And I want them to know I'm really serious. And so I started calling them every Friday and every Friday morning, I just kind of got up first thing, called them and said, how's this baby and what's going on? Do you have DNA results? Like what's going on? And I started talking to all different kinds of people every time I called and that developed a relationship, which I didn't know was going to be needed for this next situation that came yeah. up because then a few months in to my waiting, they said to me, well, we were just going to call you. And I thought, well, that's weird because you've never called me before. What's mm -hmm. going on? So when they said there's another baby, I thought first, you know, well, how could that be? I hadn't seen anything in the news. And they said, well, no, this baby is here. And this baby had died at a grandparent's house and probably of SIDS. And once they determined that there was no foul play, there would be no criminal investigation. So they proceeded with trying to get a hold of the family, who they did know because the baby had passed away at the parent, the grandparents' house. 
And so it was so confusing to me that now here's a case where they know the family. They have um, an address on a grandparent, which gives them property tax information, which then they can just go in that computer database and get all kinds of information about families. And they did that and they called everybody and everybody just said, like, no, we're not doing it. They didn't want to take responsibility for moving forward with a funeral or anything like that. No responsibility in death for this baby. And this child was five months old. Oh, gosh, that's just... You know, it's staggering. And I, I mean, I just can't even understand it. And I think it's kind of like in that moment, as I reflect back on even the bigger scope of, you know, taking care of the baby and being so focused on, I can't get caught up in all the details of the story yeah. or the reasons behind someone's decision or whatever. And I just thought, all I know is that there's a baby that needs to be taken care of in death. And if I was going to take care of the one, then why wouldn't I take care of this one? Thought it was going to be a once and done situation. And here I am with another thing before me. And um, when the coroner said to me, you know, well, does your organization do this? I was like, um, you know, I don't know, because I'm not really an organization. I don't have an organization. Uh, I'm like having this internal conversation with myself all the while and listening to her. And I was driving and I said, I got to pull over. I've got to figure this out. And I don't know. I I just need to call you back. And it was in that time I sat in my car and I prayed and I just thought, you know, again, like, well, if I'm going to take care of this one child and this one child deserves it. My mother was a child of God. We gave her a beautiful funeral. You know, I helped her choose her burial gown, her clothing and suit that she wore, her jewelry. And my dad and I chose her headstone together. And I, you know, all that was so fresh that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, I'll just maybe oh, maybe I'm supposed to do it for this baby and it's not even going to happen for the other baby. You know, and I started thinking all the, like, I don't know. But I put everything in place already to have a funeral and I thought, well, I'll just have a funeral for baby Zachary in, instead and maybe this is the one I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And little did I know that that was just going to be one of many. Was it several months later that the first baby then, um, you found out the information about the first baby or how long did it? 13 months 13 Long. months. And so after you had done probably more than just the one baby by the time that came around, right? Um, I had done um, actually just the, the one, baby Zachary. But what also then happened after that was, so then I have those two situations where there's I don't meet a family. I take possession of the, the child in death and um, claim the baby legally. Did and you, everything. So was it literally like an adoption? It was, and I didn't even realize it. I think in terms of the coroner's office is governed by an elected official, and that means that the state you know, has all kinds of procedural things around all the criminal investigations, everything that happens there, and the paperwork is all legal paperwork. And it was landing on me, you know, like I couldn't put words to it. I couldn't, I wasn't thinking through like this in a cognitive way, like, oh, this makes sense that I'm doing this or that Mm -hmm. like logically I'm signing legal paperwork. And then from there, I went to the cemetery and I chose a plot of land in baby land for this baby. And then they said, will you sign this paperwork? And I'm like, wow, when I sign this paperwork, I'm going to own this plot lot of land that this baby is going in. My name is on it. And I said, what if the mom ever comes back? What if like someone were to say, you know, I want claim now. They were like, they can't do it. You legally legally own this plot of land and what's in it. I realized this 
this was like a legal adoption. It's just not in a way that I would have ever dreamed would be the way it would be. Did did it feel like, I don't know, did it feel like you in a way added a child to your family even though you didn't know the child? Absolutely. I, you know, the name, it's like as moms, we choose names for our children. And um, it, it was interesting with this particular baby because his name was Zachary. Zachary just meant something to me because when I was pregnant and I thought I was having a boy, I loved the name Zachary. And I thought, oh, I'd love to name my baby Zachary. Well, our last name is Zanako. And I just thought, Zachary (laughs) Zanako, that's a lot to say. So I went with Andrew. And um, when this came up as Zachary, and then my husband had a charm made for me, and he had Zachary's name put on it. And he put it on my mother's bracelet where my other children's charms and names hang. And I thought, oh my gosh, I do have a Zachary after all. And um, when I put that on my charm, you know, I felt the weight of ownership in the, over him and him like claiming him and his, his legacy. Um, and that mem- remembering him was something I longed to do. And it just felt like he was mine. And all of those things just came in kind of a backwards way. You know, like I hear about moms who adopt who say, you know, the baby didn't grow inside them, but the baby grew in their heart. And I felt like mine, Zachary grew in my heart after the fact, you know, and he has continued to. There's a beautiful artist who does portraits of children in South Carolina, and she um, read my book. And she said she felt like God laid on her heart that her yes would be to paint a portrait of one of my children. Well, Zachary's one of the few I actually had a picture of, because Mm -hmm. after I did meet his mom, she gave me a picture of him. He was five months old. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to have a portrait of him. So his portrait hangs in my office, and he's the only one I have a portrait of because I have a portrait of him when he was alive at five months old, and he's got chubby cheeks, and he's adorable with little overalls on, you know? (laughs) I mean, just like any other one of my kids would hang in my home with a picture. So that was extremely endearing to me to be my very first funeral um, and my first adoption of a baby. In the book, you talk so much about not having any judgment for these moms because number one, you don't know like what they've been through. You right. don't know um, the circumstances surrounding anything. No. And, and it came back later on many of these stories that it really was that way. It really yeah. was to the point where people were probably judging these moms really wrongly right. Right. and inaccurately and just unfairly. And so how did you um, you know, you started with that position. So how, yeah. where did that come from where you were able to just completely remove that from the beginning? And how important has that been mm. in every situation? Yeah, I think God prepared my heart. Um, and I really have to say in this case, like I was so focused on the baby and the need in front of me that I I just didn't consider it. And I, I think it was in a way a blessing because I didn't let my heart go someplace that would never have ever resolved in an answer, you know? Um and, and I think with like with baby Zachary, what struck me was what they did know about the mom was that she was homeless. And I, I, I just can't imagine, I mean, I can't imagine being homeless. I can't imagine not having resources. And I know this child was at his grandmother's house. And actually, if anything, I felt like, well, where's grandma? And I realized the depth of rejection on this child was not just a mom. You know, we can get, have tunnel vision about assuming that like, let's just demonize the mom here. And yet it was an entire family that said no. And that just gripped me. And it was almost like so much that I couldn't consider thinking about it in detail. I I asked the coroner when they went back to the mother, I said, ask her if she will do the right thing and care for her child in death if if I provide the resources for her. And I I support her in this because Mm -hmm. I feel like 
long term, her heart will be better. She will be a more whole person if she does the right thing in death here. And they were like, I don't know that she's going to do anything. And I said, just go ask. And I need her to sign away her rights to me because I have just felt like I needed her to make that choice. And she did very willingly. Um, and, and that's just fascinating to me. Now, the first story, though, with the baby in the dumpster, you know, I, I heard the media demonize that mom. And I remember thinking, why do they think it's the mom? Like, I just know as a, as a woman and a wife and a mom, like, there's a dad and there's grandparents and there's other people around. Like, why are they just totally teaming on the mom here? And that's, in fact, what ha- ended up happening. You know, the first baby, um, it was found out that it was not the mom that put that baby in that dumpster. It was a funeral home director and he had illegally disposed of that body. And of course, and she didn't know. She had no idea. You know, and the next bunch of questions that everyone was asking me was like, well, where has she been this whole time? Where the baby was 13 months at the coroner's office you know, didn't she wonder where her baby was? And when I finally met her and when I, when I heard her heart and how she had delivered this baby, she had had terrible delivery. She got very, very sick. She fell into a very deep, dark depression. She was in the hospital months and months afterwards um, that she could not have even thought about doing anything with the baby. And then when she did begin to wonder, she went to the funeral home and no one answered the door. No one returned her phone calls. So she was really stuck. So she was wondering herself all the same things, but never, ever thought in a million years that the story that continued showing up on the news for 13 months. In addition to the baby stories, I I had no idea when I read your book that it it extended much further than that, even to one story that stands out to me is a couple that had had a miscarriage like 30 years ago. Yeah. and, And you came in contact with them. And you were able to provide them a headstone for their baby and give them kind of closure and peace in in that. How did that story come about? The headstone situation also first, when it first came to me as an idea of a need, came again through the coroner's office, through relationships I was establishing. And while we were still waiting for baby Doe, I was on the phone with them one morning and they said, hey, we've got this mom. Her son died in a public park pool accident. He was 13. They were able to all gather some money together and have the funeral for the son that they loved. And they honored him well, but they just can't afford a headstone. And I, of course, had never had that thought before. And I mean, funerals are expensive. We all know that. Um, And so the the headstone was just going to be gravy for them, but they longed for it. And I, I mean, I just had no idea. And they said, you know, does your organization provide headstones? And I was again, like, I don't know. I don't know what I do, you know? (laughs) And I said, well, let me do my homework. And I called the cemetery where he was buried and said, like, how much is a headstone? What, how do you go about doing this? You know, trying to learn. So I learned all about it. And then I thought, you know, this is an interesting situation because now I get to meet the family. The other situations had happened with baby Doe still waiting, baby Zachary never met the family, and I was very eager to meet this family. And so I said to the coroner, you know, could I meet this family and talk with them? I want to hear about Tim, and I want to hear his story And then I want to tell them in person that I'm going to provide this for them. And I had no idea. I mean, that story in my book is one of my favorites because meeting the family changed me forever. I love them. And um, hearing about Tim just changed me. He came, like his whole memory um, through them, like made him come alive to me. And I just loved blessing them with that headstone. And that was the first time I saw the beauty of a full circle moment of healing. And when we went to the cemetery to see it placed, 
and I watched this family walk up to it where they had previously walked up in the grass and not known where he was. Now they knew and they saw the marking and they saw his name written in the earth and it changed them. It changed their healing. Their grief finally had closure and they were expressing things to me about the meaning of it that I could never have imagined. So the whole headstone thing had already like really been presented to me, churning in my heart. And again, then through the cemetery relationship that I had established, Marion, who worked at Washington Park East, was out on Memorial Day weekend. And they that is like the busiest weekend, of course, at a cemetery. People come out and walk of course, the grounds, and they want to mm-hmm. visit the headstones of their loved ones and put flowers down. And she was just out in a golf cart, kind of going around, making sure that people were finding their loved ones if they needed to get any information. And she found this couple, and she saw them wandering. And she kind of came back around and still saw them wandering. Kind and of, they couldn't find what they their couldn't grave find marker. the place because when other graves are placed and other headstones are placed, you lose your yeah. bearings a little bit. Like, well, where's my loved one? I thought they were here next to this person. Well, now there's someone else there. And so she went up to this older couple and talked to them, and they they told her the story of their Melinda who had died 40 years before, and that they never had a chance to get her a headstone, that they had put money down several times and lost their deposit because the time had expired. And they just longed to have that baby have a headstone. And so she took them to the office and she found the child's folder. And when they had that baby, at the time, they didn't even put a baby's name on a folder. So they had, you know, baby Laudig. And they said that they've come back over and over and over again. And it was like just in recent years that they ended up putting the baby's name in the file Mm -hmm. and acknowledging their baby with a name. And so she just called me and she's like, Linda, I know what you're, you know, she and I had worked together a little bit. I know what you're doing. I love, I've fallen in love with this couple. Would you please meet them? And I was very, I was like, yes, I would love to do that. And that's really how he knows your name works. I mean, it's just such a collaborative spirit between people that I'm either partnering with to do the work I'm doing, or I meet a family and then they introduce me to another family and the needs just kind of all now fall under the same way, like that he knows your name was birthed in that first year between abandonment outside, abandonment at the coroner's office, and now headstone ministry that that is primarily now the footprint of how I come into all the different things I'm doing with He Knows Your Name. It's amazing how many different um, avenues it can go down because something else that you do is you work with women who are grieving their abortions. Now, mm-hmm. how did, can you tell us maybe a story on, on that side of things? And, sure. And, and how that works and how you work with women to kind of heal from that experience. Well, primarily the, the way I meet these women is that I meet them because of another traumatic loss. So Nicole, my the first mom of baby Doe, when baby Doe was finally, it was determined that he was disposed of illegally, they then found Nicole somehow through the criminal investigation. And then that's how I met her. And so we had had baby Zachary's funeral. Then several months later, I meet Nicole. And I told her, I've longed for 13 months to have a funeral for your baby. And I will resource this for you. And she said, well, I I thought he would just have to be cremated because it's so cheap. And I said, well, I I really want to give you a funeral if that's what you want. And it's really what she wanted. So while we were walking through the plant, like I had planned the funeral, but I was just spending time with her trying to get to know her a little bit over the next course of that week as the funeral kind of was 
getting planned and put in place with everybody. And I was spending time with her and I was listening to her grief and I was listening to her journey. And she kept going back to the fact that she was a little over 40 years old at this point and she was childless and probably would remain childless now forever. And what if she wouldn't have had that abortion? And so this old story comes up, old grief is, you know, comes to the surface. Well, when she was 17, had an abortion, her mom took her against her will. And she said, and I, you know, I just have always longed for that baby. And then went all those years not getting pregnant again until baby Nicholas in her late 30s at that point. And so that's a very common story for me. I meet someone because of a tragic loss of like a child that maybe dies suddenly in a bus accident here in town and I get connected with the family to help them be resourced because they're so under-resourced. And um, I try to just help them with some part of what they're trying to do. Or it's, you know, because those are the families I'm meeting. And those mm-hmm. are the moms that have compounding grief. And they're telling me their abortive stories. So I don't have an abortive ministry, so to speak, for recovery. But it's more along the lines of, through He Knows Your Name, assisting them in a way because of a current situation, that their past story and their past grief comes to bear. And through that, I can work with them with healing, spiritual healing, um, the name of a baby, and explaining to them that when we name an aborted baby, it all of a sudden isn't about an event anymore. It's about a name. And then now that there's a name, and you can look back and see a storyline in your life, now we can talk about well, what's the memory of that baby in your life? It doesn't have to all be negative. Maybe there's something else that God birthed in you through now healing and naming that would be meaningful for you to carry legacy. And now, and I give every one of those moms a charm and they wear their baby's name around their neck. And so now they tell the story of having a baby that's named, you know, whatever. And um, that just changes their heart and healing can happen. So that's how the recovery really comes through for them in healing. The organization came together out of not you trying to put it together, but it's sort of like God put it together step by step. Right. Um, but of course, in order to be helping all these people, you have to have money to right. do that. And so how did you begin raising money to support all of these families? Mm-hmm. You know, once you're on the Steve Harvey show, you may start getting a lot of requests, maybe things that aren't even related. And how do you pile through that? Yes, I did get a lot of requests. And you know, there were other things that came out of that for sure. And another one of those stories is in my book. Tamia Wade, a foster mom of over 50 children, wrote me an eight-page letter. And um, I read it, called her immediately. And she took care of only special needs kids. And I honestly thought she is Mother Teresa here on earth right now. And I had to go meet her. So I provided a headstone for her foster son and I went to New Orleans and met her. And I, she changed me forever. It's just, I have met the most remarkable, beautiful people who serve so sacrificially and um, are doing just the daily hard grunt work of loving people so well and giving dignity um, to life. And I I just love her so much. Um, She died a little while ago from breast cancer and um, that was really sad for me. I miss her. 
Um, but I, I just feel like I, the places I've been able to go across this country and see what people are doing. I mean, she was hard hit by Katrina. She had a handful of ha um, disabled children living with her at the time. And when they had to be evacuated, you know, someone swooped in, like took the kids. They were all over the place. They took some kids to Dallas Hospital and different places. And she just continued to travel and get them all back in her nest when she could. Um, she just was such an overcomer. She just blessed me so much. Anyway, your question about fundraising, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I when I first started, fundraising was not on my mind at all because I thought it was going to be an episodic, like right. once and done situation. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just take care of this. I felt when I first called the coroner's office and they said, you're the only one that's called, I knew in that moment that this was a calling on my life. And I knew that um, when I'm called to do something, it's for me to do. And I just thought I'm going to take care of this and resource this funeral and just do whatever it takes to have this funeral. And then when it turned into funerals and headstones, you know, I just kind of kept doing it. And I'm really thankful that um, I have a private foundation that supports what I do. And I've not had to ever fundraise in 10 years. I've not had to, honestly, I feel like waste my time, if you will, doing that when I can be doing the work mm -hmm. that God has me doing. And I have so many relationships with people that I can't imagine having to focus any time on communicating about needs and fundraising. And, and my needs come up like in a moment and they need to be answered like this week. You know, I can't say, well, hey, can you wait three months for me to fundraise something? When mm -hmm. someone dies, they need a funeral like in three days. And um, I just, you know, just do it myself and answer the call of that. Over time, um, people have, I mean, the businesses that I first started working with have all partnered with me and have um, themselves felt the call on them to have this be a mission of theirs. And that has been a grace beyond measure for me that they have such hearts of compassion in the funeral home business. Indiana Funeral Care has just been my partner from day one. Um, uh, Washington Parky Cemetery partners with me. They've been very generous as well. And then um, another story that came out of Thomas Monument, where I was buying a lot of my granite for headstones, after providing a headstone for a family and meeting with them, they just said to me, you know, I want to provide all the granite for the state of Indiana for you. Um, now, not the bronze things. There's some cemeteries I have to have bronze headstones, so I just have to pay for those. Um, they're a lot more expensive, but I'm just not having to do as many of those. Baby lands mostly provide a flat granite stone in most mm -hmm. cemeteries, which is great. Um, so I haven't had to buy a granite headstone for quite a while. Um, and what I love being able to do is even have them made here and have people take them home to their family. Um, so I have headstones in eight different states. So when people connect with me and say, oh, my sister just had a baby, you know, a loss, infant loss. She needs a headstone. And a couple of times I've had one made here. I pick it up, put it in my trunk, take it to my friend or someone, and I bless it in my trunk and put it in their car and off it goes. And then they have it set in the state that they go to. And I just love that I feel like the multiplication of the ministry here is um, coming out of Indiana in a lot of ways. God is gracious to me, and he paces those things out for sure. Um, but the other thing that's happening is that with baby Amelia's finding at Eagle Creek Park in 2014, we here in Indiana have not had an abandonment since the, her finding. And so I've not had an, a, had to have a funeral for a baby abandoned and um, outside or even at the coroner's office, which is a huge blessing. So the, the legacy on her life, which is raising awareness for the safe haven law, we're seeing here in Indiana is absolutely changing the so, climate. So tell me here. about the safe haven law and the baby boxes and all of that. Well, the safe haven law here in Indiana was passed in the year 2000, and we have the um, 
the law that it says that um, a baby can be safely surrendered up to 30 days without neglect to a fire station or hospital. And so um, a mom can walk up and with no questions asked, you know, surrender her baby. And that is being done. And since Amelia, I mean, since 2016, I think we've had about 45 babies safely surrendered, which is absolutely remarkable. Uh, so I am thrilled that, you know, her legacy on her life is just something I, I realize every day. Um, and then I was able to meet Monica Kelsey, who's the founder of Safe Haven Baby Boxes, and she's out, she lives in Fort Wayne. And at that funeral, I met her, and she told me about the Safe Haven Baby Boxes and her her story, her testimony about how she went to Africa, found these, you know, saw these boxes, and she herself was an abandoned child baby. And so she thought, I want to make sure that these boxes are here. And then with Baby Amelia's findings, she it just like ramped up her passion, and she started working with a senator to write a, a law to enhance the safe haven law here in Indiana. And then she asked me to give testimony before the Senate and the um, House of Representatives about the testimony for my babies. And that, yes, there is abandonment, and these are real babies. And I've read the autopsy results, and we do not want to leave babies out in the middle of winter So what are the, the boxes cold. like? What is? I know they're fairly expensive because yes. they... They are privately funded. They're $10,000 a piece, but they, they're being placed in fire stations. And the law states that they have to be in a fire station manned 24-7. So we have here in Indiana two that are in volunteer stations. And I only bring that up because when the law was changed last year, they grandfathered those two stations in, which is awesome because those are the boxes where safe surrenders have happened. So um, those boxes are put in a fire station, and a mom can walk up to them and um, open the door and an alarm goes off. She puts the baby in, closes the door, the door locks, and both babies that were surrendered here last year were, were rescued within 90 seconds and given medical care. They were both adopted in 30 days. Like the week of Christmas, that baby went to a forever family. And it's like this baby became the dream of a family. And these babies were a mother in crisis is choosing to carry, do the hard thing. She's choosing to carry. She's choosing to give her baby life and a future and she's putting her baby in a box which really ultimately means that she's choosing adoption mm -hmm. and these babies are being adopted and um, I have, I'm hearing the stories I can't talk about them because of privacy but I'm not you know you want to talk about crying you know you'll just cry all day long about it because <laughs> you know, it's I so would, beautiful from this conversation. I know it's so beautiful how do you think this the safe haven laws and sort of the work that you're doing I'm trying to break into a kind of a bit of a conversation about culture of life right now yeah and, you know the state of abortion <clears throat> in America right now is obviously at a very like, yeah, it's a hot button thing right, right now with, with right. The, the law in New York and, and all of that conversation. <clears throat> How do you think what you're doing is impacting that conversation? Yeah. Is it possible for these kinds of, you know, the baby boxes and the safe haven laws and all of that? Is this going to make a difference? Is this going to help the numbers go down? Well, okay, so the volatility we're seeing right now politically um, is definitely, I think, heightening how horrible it is. Um, but I think we have to realize that it's always been horrible and it's just in the news now. And right. we're, we're seeing the numbers, you know, and when we we see that in 2018 that abortion, you know, the highest death rate was with abortion. You know, we look at these numbers of 40 something million, you know, it's horrifying and it should, it should upset all of us. So at the same time though, I'm like, wow, look what's going on. The safe haven baby box, the legislation that was passed here in Indiana last July is so beautifully written that the bill and the law is mimicable so quickly and easily in other states mm -hmm. that we've gone from Ohio to Tennessee 
we're, it's clicking right along. So I want to also say that all the while, all this about abortions going on, there are other things going on to save lives. And I have always been saying that since Amelia's finding in 2014, her funeral was in January of 2015. And that's when I met Monica Kelsey. That's when she started the work for what she's doing. And I knew at the time that Safe Haven Law, since the year 2000, the government has not spent $1 on education or awareness. So that's a really big problem. Mm -hmm. And so my baby Amelia basically became the tool to raise awareness for the law. And since that time, I mean, like I said, we've had 45 handoffs in our state. So some of it is, I see the babies and the safe haven law and the baby box, all opportunities to have new conversation so that we can offer women in crisis another option. Because I believe that Planned Parenthood and Roe v. Wade and everything has been like so one-dimensional that women have thought that's their only option. And so by presenting more options, women feel like they have more choices. I think talking about adoption is also another big thing. So the, the documentary... Um, I lived on Parker Avenue is available free online. It's 30 minutes. I watched on YouTube. it. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal. It's and really think, good. And I think we need to be talking about adoption more um, because that is an option, clearly. And there are women who do, they are willing to carry. They just are afraid about what, what they're going to do once the ba- they deliver the baby. So mm-hmm. once they realize that they have an option like the Safe Haven Baby Box, which gives an anonymous surrender option. And the reason I think that's so important is because I believe that the issues of the opiate crisis, immigration, and trafficking are, of course, all on the rise as well. And that women um, who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, even the Safe Haven Law of handing a baby to a fireman, even though there's supposed to be no questions asked, they physically have to stand before someone and hand their baby to them. And I think that that gets really hard for them. The anonymous surrender, I think, is going to really be a game changer with the Safe Haven Baby Box. Have you ever met someone that you know that did it later? I've not met them, but the founder has, and she's had a conversation with them. We, What I wanted to share is the hotline which is one eight six six nine nine B A B Y one. That hotline goes twenty four seven. Has trained professionals answering that phone. That resource alone is a game changer for moms in crisis. We are finding that the two babies that were safely surrendered under the safe haven law just this week here in Indiana were in rural communities where there isn't a box, but they called the hotline. And they got all their options and choices and through the hotline were coached through how to go safely surrender their baby. One, you know, to a professional, another, it was like there were some logistical things, but they, under the law, got the protection of the law. And so we say at Safe Haven Baby Boxes, like first choice is to use the law, to go hand your baby over. The other, the last choice and last resort would be to use the box. But the... The babies put in the box are put in there with placenta and umbilical cord and everything. These babies are delivered probably in a car or outside or something. And these moms knew that they wanted that box because they drove to it. One mom drove over 50 miles to a box, which means she passed a hospital, a fire station, and she was going for that box because she wanted the anonymous surrender. And that's huge. And so my tie to the box is that my baby Amelia's footprint is on the logo. And so her legacy is on that. And I always think about when I hear a story of a mom surrendering, whether under the law or in the box, I think she has to use her feet to carry herself to a place of safety. 
for safety for herself and safety for her baby. And what a hero she is for choosing that. How have you seen God work in the lives of the women and the families that you've worked with? And have you seen people come to Christ through your ministry? <laughs> yes, I do all the time. You know, I think that um, the cemetery and a funeral home, obviously, are places where we all face our mortality. There's just, you know, the grief of losing a child is that I believe the hardest grief for us to face as human beings and as women. And there's just no more raw place than to bring hope and only Jesus can bring hope. I, I think I could help resource someone till the cows come home, but it's not going to change the circumstances or change their heart. I, you know, I face under-resourced people all the time, and I think it's interesting. They don't ask me to pay their rent or pay their whatever bill. Um, they, they want friendship. They want me to stand with them in their heartache. They want to be known in their pain. And when I stand with them, I can give them friendship. But I, I think Jesus gave the resource of himself. He didn't have money to give. He went and he sat with and listened to and loved on the people of pain and people who were you know, grieving. And when he did that, he, he knew them by name. And that is where I believe the gospel meets them in their heart because God loving his children is just a raw place right there of loving and being known. And the father heart of God pours out, I think, a sweet, sweet grace on people who have lost children. Um, and I, I just believe that's the gospel because God lost his own son choosing to do that um, for the salvation of the world. And when I get to be at a cemetery or in a funeral home and I'm with the family and the extended family and friends and community, and I'm like, you guys, it's a little obvious that I'm looking at this little casket that's like maybe the size or smaller of my shoe boxes in my closet. How could we not face our own mortality and ask the question, so when it's my turn and we're standing here at the grave smelling the fresh turned dirt, who's going to speak for me? What are they going to say? What are they going to sing? Like we have to have this moment and I do it all the time where I confront that. I just go there and I say, you know, I know this baby's going to be in heaven. Do you know where you're going to be? As an adult, you have choices to make and it's ever before you. You know, the forgiveness of Jesus is a gift of grace that God provided for us so that we could be with him eternally. Have abundant life now, bring the kingdom now, but also have the assurance of salvation in heaven. I believe that God's word is clear about that for babies, but we all have to make that choice and decision. And he gave it to us to, to be free, to choose. What are you going to choose today? And I, there's a baby that lived 13 minutes in Ohio, and I went, and the family was so fractured, they only came together when this baby was born for some reason. I, I don't even know why. But they were not even in relationship. Many of them had not even met each other. But three generations were at this cemetery, and I said to them, this baby lived 13 minutes and left you the legacy of peace. How? And I had them all go around the room and say how old they were. And the oldest person in the room, I was like, you, 70 years old, have not done in 70 years what this child did in 13 minutes. There's been no peace, no unity, no harmony over the spirit of the generations here. So this child has accomplished more. Please now carry the legacy of this child and let it change you forever. And then I realized when I said, has anyone here ever read the Bible? And they all said no. So I did a full sharing of the gospel and asked and invited them to consider receiving the gift of grace. And they did. And three generations of family came to Christ that day. And so when people say to me, you know, do you cry all the time? This is so hard. And I think I, 
honestly, it's like the joy set before me is that I get to go live out the kingdom, bring light to darkness, bring justice where there's been an injustice, and bring resource to people who don't have resource so that they can love and give honor and dignity to their, their precious ones. And I get to live out the kingdom every day doing what I do. It is so exciting for me. I am so full of joy doing it because I have the big picture. And I the gospel for me is the end game every single time. So what's what do you see for the future of He Knows Your Name? Mm. One of the things that I'm still really active in as far as claiming babies is abandonment at hospitals. And I haven't talked about that yet at all, but babies are abandoned at hospitals and inner city hospitals have moms that deliver and then walk away. They say they're gonna come back in three days with a resource and they don't. And the hospital goes through their legal procedures, but they're you know, they, they have a, they have medical records, they know who they're dealing with, and yet these people just say no, no, no. They can't force them to do it without, of course, legal fees for themselves that are horrendous. And so um, I have claimed numerous babies from local hospitals here, and um, actually some even in Ohio. So where I have established relationship through other stories, um, hospitals sometimes get a hold of me and say, we have a baby that needs to be taken care of in death. Um, the cuddle cot work I'm doing to get a cuddle cot in every hospital so that a family of loss can have an option to have that cooling system and device in their room so that they can have the gift of time with their little baby is um, a real big passion of mine. And supporting baby box and um, coming alongside them in any way I can uh, is just always what I'm going to be saying yes to because I believe that that's where we're saving lives. And are there ways <clears throat> that people can get involved or help if they want to? Well, I really love for people to read my website and li and read the stories because I think people find themselves in the stories. And I know people doing all different kinds of things, not even through He Knows Your Name, wherever they live because they just are thinking differently because of what they've seen me do. And it's, it's allowing for conversation and consideration of things that they maybe had never thought of before. And it's really never been my desire to um, franchise He Knows Your Name all over the country <laughs> yeah. because I believe that God has an invitation for everyone. And there's a yes on everyone's heart for something that God wants them to be doing. And if we would all answer the call on our lives, then I believe we would get a lot more done. And I love when people come to my events. I mean, whether they are... Um, a celebration of life or we're celebrating anything um, from a funeral to an anniversary or whatever, having people stand with me at the grave is really significant. And it means the world to me. And I think people find like, well, yeah, but don't you need money? And and people do give to me. And I, if, if I have been given a donation, I use it towards something. Um, but I'm not going to be out asking for money. But I just love when people give the gift of time. And um, I always have events on my Facebook page about what I'm doing, what's coming up. Um, but they can also support ba Safe Haven Baby Box by going to their website and donating to them. Um, and then I have families all the time raising money for cuddle cots. Um, so I sponsor them because a cuddle cot is $4,000. But when it's purchased through my nonprofit, I get it for $3,000. So people do their own fundraising for a cuddle cot. And then I do the purchasing of it and all the administrative part of it. And then I always go to the hospital and give a blessing and share the gospel in the hospital setting with the staff and family. And that's just, I mean, so I have, we've placed 18 cuddle cots in the state of Indiana in a little over three years. So we went from one to 18. I have three more on order and we have more than any state in the country. So Indiana is leading the way. Um, and I think we need to be really encouraged, you know, for people in our state to say, People are watching what we're doing. And when I go other places, they're like, wow, what's happening in Indiana in regard to, he knows your name, cuddle cots, safe haven baby box, the laws that Governor Holcomb is passing, um, our legislative, we've got so many people doing amazing work for right to life that um, people are noticing and, and they're 
they're following suit. And I just think that's really awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Linda, so much for sharing your story. Thank with, you for having with me. With Worth Your Time podcast today. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we could talk a lot longer <laughs> than this, but I, I don't want to keep it going forever. But I'm going to put all thank of you. that information on the website in the show notes. And I hope everyone will check it out. Um, check out Linda's book. I mean, if you can't tell, I was crying all the way <laughs> through it. I was crying through this interview. So um, yeah, it's called He Knows Your Name, How One Abandoned Baby Inspired Me to Say Yes to God. And we will link that um, as well in the show notes and make sure that everyone has access to it. So thanks for listening, everyone. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.